When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. I'm Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken. And today we get to test just how unshaken we can be. We're going to be studying plural marriage today in section 132. Now we've got 129 and 30 and 31 to, to hit on the way. So bear with me and hold out until the end. This really will be a lesson that I hope that you'll endure to the end with. In fact, one of the most important things that I'll share today will come right at the end. Uh, and I pray that We'll be able to make sense of this. This is a tricky subject. Uh, I apologize that this is this video is coming out late this week. Uh, it wasn't due only to fear and trepidation over trying to teach you all section 132 uh, verse by verse. Uh, of all the revelations, it would be easier just to skip over some things. This would be the one. But uh, I, I was blindsided with a, an additional project this past week that gave me a week's worth of 18-hour days. Uh, pretty intense, uh, but I made it through, and uh, I'm grateful that we could spend some time uh, studying the scriptures together. I've, I've, I'm amazed that as I meet you and as I read, uh, as time allows, your comments, uh, how many of you are praying for me and my family, and I just want you to know that I, I feel that. And I really do pray for an interest in your prayers today, uh, specifically because of the things that we're going to be talking about, which can be really tricky. Uh, I, I remember actually when I was at Divinity School, I was invited by a university uh, nearby, near Vanderbilt, to come and, I mean, the professor calls and says, I understand you're a Latter-day Saint at the Divinity School. I'm like, yes. Uh, would you be able to come and lecture on Mormonism in my class? And I said, I'd be happy to. Uh, what kind of class is it? What approach did you want me to take? What do you want me to cover? And she said, this was an odd one. I had done that frequently at Vanderbilt uh, and some other places just in religion classes, religious history and so on. But this professor taught sociology. And so when she said, it's a sociology class, I said, oh, okay, you want sociology of religion. Great. Uh, anything more specific than that? And then she, <laughs> you can kind of sense this awkwardness on the phone. And she's like, well, yeah, uh, please don't take this the wrong way. But uh, our class this semester is in the sociology department. But specifically, it's a, it's a class on social deviance. And I remember thinking, I'm, this is the first time in my life I think I've been considered a social deviant. Uh, what, what do you mean about, how is Mormonism going to help you make sense of social deviance? And she said, well, I was hoping you could explain plural marriage to us. Because it's tough to think of a better example in Victorian America than a bunch of Christians living plural marriage, which goes against everything that, that, that Victorian Americans' uh, values would have, would have said was, was okay. So... How on earth did those saints navigate that, uh, that experience? Uh, she didn't call them saints, by the way. Uh, <laughs> neither did the people that, that watched them live this principle with, with shock. Uh, so I said, oh, that sounds good to me. And so we, I went, and for that, that, that class period, we talked about plural marriage from a sociological perspective based on 
on the norms of the time and how they navigated social deviance. Now our task today is going to be different than my task there in that sociology class because we're talking spirituality and not just sociology. I, I wasn't trying to convince those students of the rightness of the practice, simply trying to help them understand how the saints navigated that sociologically. Whereas for us as Latter-day Saints and, and inheritors of this practice through our history, how do we grapple with this? How do we wrestle with it? And, and honestly, as we strive to be unshaken in our faith, I really do pray for the power of the Holy Ghost to help us navigate a very narrow path. And what makes this even narrower is, well, let me put it this way. Elder Holland once said to someone that was wrestling with, with statements made in general conference, he said, we are general authorities and thus we teach general principles. Uh, we, don't, we don't address exceptions to the rule, but the Holy Ghost does. He is a specific authority. See, if I'm the, a general authority, the Holy Ghost is a specific authority. And in those kinds of circumstances, you are going to have to be as close to that specific authority as possible. You see, what we're going to be trying to do today, and what makes this tricky, is we are going to be asking the Holy Ghost to confirm that he said something to someone else that he cannot say to us, or that he will not. When we deal with exceptions to rules, the general authorities will teach rules. The specific authority will teach rules. But in specific cases, the Holy Ghost will confirm specific direction to someone in a particular circumstance. We, we are used to that. Let me give you two examples in Scripture you're probably already thinking of. Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac. That, is, that goes against the general rule of thou shalt not kill. But in a specific circumstance, for that specific man, a specific test was given by a very specific authority. The same could be said of Nephi, as he was asked, to, commanded to kill Laban. And, and again, he, that's a fascinating story. I wish we had more of the inner workings of Abraham when he was given that commandment by God. And what, what do I do? And how can I do this? And are you sure this is right? Because we do see that with Nephi. As he wrestles with the Spirit, I can't do this. I, I won't. And then finally, coming to know for himself that that really was the Lord's will. That's what we're going to see today in plural marriage as, as well. The, the other two examples are more personal and perhaps more difficult. And so I'm sorry if this brings up painful memories. It's not meant to. But as far as specific authorities and the Holy Ghost telling you something that it won't tell the, the general population, think about things like abortion and divorce. Elder Oaks, by the way, with a very incisive legal mind and understanding precedents and exceptions and, and so on, has given general conference talks on, on divorce. There's been talks about abortion. And, and the, the point is, generally speaking, the general authorities and the general rule of God here is no divorce and no, and no abortion. But exceptions to that, those rules must exist. And how do I know if I'm the exception? especially if we've been raised with the rule, it'll only come from the Holy Ghost. And, and there are those exceptions, but they're not automatic. If you find yourself uh, with a pregnancy because of rape or incest, or uh, in a situation that threatens the life of the mother or the child, it's not an automatic green light, but it is an opportunity to pray to Heavenly Father and ask for your specific circumstances. What do I do here? And, and allowances are made in those circumstances. Same with divorce. 
I had a friend years ago that was contemplating divorce and just wrestling with just the, the gut punch that thinking of that was because that was the last thing she'd ever intended for herself and her, and her family. But as she pondered, I remember talking to her and I asked, whose judgment are you concerned about? Because if it's the judgment of others, then we need to get past that in general. And that was definitely the case of the 19th century saints with plural marriage. But they were less concerned about the judgment of others. Our, our concern ought to be the judgment of God. And as we talked, I said, God has to be a part of this decision. If God is part of the decision to enter a marriage, then he has to be a part of the, the gut-wrenching decision to end one. What, what, what God hath joined, let not man put asunder, the scriptures say, right? But don't, put, don't let man or woman put it asunder. There will be times where the exception stands, and you are in a circumstance where God will say that that painful separation is necessary. That's why those, those exceptions are granted. And if he was part of that decision, wh why would you fear his judgment? It's like you're going there to, to, before him on judgment day and you're so apologetic and, and ashamed about this divorce and he looks at you strangely, just confused. I, I, I was there, remember? We went through that valley of the shadow of death. We, we, we cried together. We, we wrestled with this and I reassured you that your answer came from me. You don't have to apologize or re-explain yourself. I was there when we, you and I, made the decision. Again, we can, I, I hope that we can navigate that narrow channel and understand that, I'll put it this way, this is supposed to be a hard subject for us. It just is. Because we live back in the day of the rule, whereas they lived in the day of the exception. And the Holy Ghost cannot confirm to us the truthfulness of plural marriage because we don't, we don't live in those days, but it can. And today, I sincerely pray it will confirm the truthfulness of what the direction was given to them. Yeah, I, just, I hope that makes sense. I hope I'm being clear. It's always nice when I can see my students and their faces are kind of quizzical. It's like, okay, I need to explain that better. But, but if this is making sense, the Holy Ghost cannot, what, it's what makes it so awkward for us, uh, among other things, uh, of ah, how do I wrestle with this, this topic and how do, I just can't feel good about this. You're not supposed to as a 21st century saint. Our challenge is to put ourselves in the place of those 19th century saints for whom this law was given and to try to empathize with them to the point of honoring that the Holy Ghost can confirm to them the truthfulness of this specific law in their specific case. Just like the Spirit can confirm Abraham's sacrifice and Nephi's slain of Laban, or a friend or family member's, a loved one's painful decision under spiritual guidance to have an abortion when that's never what they wanted, or to, to go through a divorce when that was the last thing they thought they would ever do. The same was true of those early saints as they wrestled with their, them, themselves, both their, their, their natural man as well as their best selves. And that's what made this such a difficult, difficult, gut-wrenching thing. And as Joseph said to the, the apostles in his day, God will wrench your very heartstrings. And this was a time he would do just that. But before we get there, 
And I promise we will. I, like I said, endure to the end on this week's lesson. We need to start with section 129, which unfortunately gets skipped over so much because it seems like it's, oh, I wouldn't say irrelevant, but extremely unlikely for any of us to need to remember, okay? And yet, I find some incredible relevance here, and I hope that we'll, we'll be able to find it as we study. In some ways, it reminds me of section 91. If you remember that one, it talks about the Apocrypha. Uh, and again, it's like, well, again, irrelevant. I'm never going to read the Apocrypha. Well, everything you read is apocryphal. Everything you watch is apocryphal. Uh, every means of information is a chance for you to discern what comes from God and what doesn't. Remember, that was the, the principle in section 91. Uh, beyond just those specific books, uh, that are in some Bibles and not in others, as I am open to, to the world's perspectives, how much of it comes from God and how much of it is the interpolations of men. Well, we're in a similar situation in section 129. As it deals with heavenly messengers, or not so heavenly messengers, and the message that they're bringing. How do I discern what comes from God and what doesn't? So, again, 91 and 129, I think, form a pretty incredible pair. And it goes far beyond just the specifics of the Apocrypha, in 91's case, or these heavenly or not-so-heavenly messengers in 129's case. Let's start in verse 1. There are two kinds of beings in heaven, namely angels, who are resurrected personages, having bodies of flesh and bones. And then he draws upon the ultimate New Testament example of this, Jesus Christ. Verse 2, for instance, Jesus said, handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. A resurrected being, it, it's, it's not just continuing on spiritually, but we receive our physical body back. No more flesh and blood, but yes, flesh and bone. And so you can feel this. Uh, and, and so when, when Jesus appears to the apostles after the resurrection, and they think he's a ghost and they're afraid, that's when he says, touch me, handle me and see. I, it's me. I have my, my body back. And you can recognize that. That's what they do. Now, that's one example of the kind of being in heaven. The second is verse 3. Secondly, the spirits of just men made perfect. They who are not resurrected, but inherit the same glory. So those are those that are on the same trajectory as the angels that went before them. They are deserving and destined for a celestial glory. They just haven't gotten there yet. They're not quite as far along in their progress. Uh, no resurrection as of yet. So there's the two possibilities of beings in heaven. Verse 4, when a messenger comes saying he has a message from God, here's how you can discern you know, which of the two that is. And there's a third option, which he'll introduce in just a moment. When a messenger comes saying he has a message from God, offer him your hand and request him to shake hands with you. In a way, this is our chance to experience what the apostles did. I'm... I'm not sure what, what this is. Is this a spirit? I'd probably be just as afraid as they were. Uh, but offer your hand, and this is a chance for you to handle him and see. That this is a, a, that a spirit hath not flesh and bone as you see Christ have. Okay, if we're back into the, the, the apostolic experience. Now verse 5, if he be an angel, he will do so, and you will feel his hand. There, there was Jesus resurrected, more, more, far more than an angel, I'll say. Yeah, but let them have that experience to know for themselves. On the other hand, verse 6, If he be the spirit of a just man made perfect, he will come in his glory. For that is the only way he can appear. He is destined for that same celestial glory after all. But verse 7, here's where the difference comes in. Ask him to shake hands with you, but he will not move. 
because it is contrary to the order of heaven for a just man to deceive. But he will still deliver his message. It's like, oh, here's, sh- shake my hand. He's like, I'd love to. I don't have a hand to shake with. Uh, it's, it's, on, it's on its way, okay? Uh, I know I will be resurrected to celestial glory. That glory you can see, you just can't feel because I have no resurrected celestial glorified hand to shake yours with. Uh, but if you'll allow me to share my message with you, uh, you'll know by that same glory and that same spirit that it comes from God. Okay, so far so good. I can now tell the difference between an angel and a just man made perfect. But what if it's neither of the above? Because there's not just a heaven, there's an opposite place and an opposite source of not light and truth, but darkness and error. But unfortunately, sometimes that darkness is counterfeited as light. If you look at verse 8, there's the other option, the third possibility. If it be the devil as an angel of light... Remember last week in section 128, we saw that brought up in in verse 20, that the devil appeared as an angel of light on the banks of the Susquehanna. And and it took Michael himself to come and help Joseph Smith discern that this was error and not truth. This was darkness masquerading as light. I guess Joseph needed section 129 a little earlier in his life. Uh, But for the rest of us, if it's the devil coming and masquerading as an angel of light, which sounds so much like him, the ultimate counterfeiter. Remember when he, as he appears to Moses and says, Moses, well, I'm a son of God. Worship thou me. Uh, so again, it's a, he's a son of the morning, just not the oldest son, the earliest in the morning. Lucifer, a light bearer, but now the prince of darkness. He's, he's trying to convince us at, with as close a counterfeit as he possibly can that his error really is truth, that his darkness really is light Well, we can't fall for it. So how do we discern without the help of Michael uh, on the banks of the Susquehanna? We'll keep going in verse 8. When you ask him to shake hands, I mean, because that's what you're going to do. He's an angel. He comes as an angel of light. You assume that's that's a true messenger. And so you extend the hand, offer him to shake hands. He will offer you his hand and you will not feel anything. You may therefore detect him. I mean, evidently, uh, Lucifer hasn't read section 129. Otherwise, he'd probably fake being a just man made perfect. And like, I don't have a hand to shake, but uh, <clears throat> therefore I cannot shake hands with you. Uh, no, there's going to be, a, there's still something else missing. And that's the truth of his message. It's still deceptive. Now, verse 9, he wraps up this, this brief uh, and somewhat odd revelation with, these are three grand keys whereby you may know whether any administration is from God. Now, let's make this revelation a little less odd-sounding then, because I really do feel this is relevant. I didn't when I was a seminary kid in high school, and we studied section 129. I still remember at the time, I'm like, what? Uh, I mean, I believe in the ministering of angels uh, to to people that are worthy of it, and that's not me. Uh, I believe in the restoration of the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood, for example, the the delivery of priesthood keys in the Kirtland Temple. Uh, We believe in the ministering of angels, okay? In fact, at the time, I was an Aaronic priesthood holder, so... I held the keys of the ministering of angels. I just never thought it would happen to me. And it still hasn't. And I'm okay with that. But as a a little uh, high schooler, I remember studying this section and thinking, am I going to need to know this? So is this going to be on the test? Uh, Because I remember thinking, if I get awoke, awakened in the middle of the night uh, by some glorious heavenly being, I'll probably remember that there's something about a handshake that I'm supposed to put, 
pleased to meet you. Uh, I just wasn't sure if I would remember if feeling something or not feeling something was a good thing. Uh, and I wasn't sure if I'd remember that it happened to be section 129. And I just honestly remember thinking as a kid, like, wait, um, can you hold on for just a second? I got to study my scriptures and, and remember uh, what I'm supposed to do to discern, okay? Again, it was just an interesting experience. Like, it, it, is this going to be on the test? Well, for some, it might be. But in reality, it is for all of us. Perhaps not with an angelic visitation, but with the coming of messages that we need to be able to know whether or not they come from God. Like I said, that's what ties section 129 into section 91. It's more than the Apocrypha. It's any communication. It's any source, possible source of truth. I have to have a discerning eye. And never more, more in true than now with the internet. This, a, this information age, which also doubles as a misinformation age. Now, one thing to say briefly before we expand this to, to relevance for each of us, and that's the idea that many of you will recognize of how do I discern true messengers? I think there's something powerful here about simply shaking hands. After all, verse 9 did talk about keys, three grand keys, whereby we may know whether any, any administration comes from God. You see, this is February of 1843, and the previous year, Joseph had revealed the endowment. And obviously, I'm not going to get into the specifics of that here. But in May of 1842, Joseph gave a sermon in the grove down the hill from where they were constructing the Nauvoo Temple, in which he said this, I preached in the grove on the keys of the kingdom, charity, etc. The keys are certain signs and words by which false spirits and personages may be detected from true, which cannot be revealed to the elders till the temple is completed. Now, he would reveal those to some of the elders before the temple was completed. Uh, there in the, red, the upstairs of the red brick store, uh, which was kind of a temple annex uh, in some ways, as Joseph began initiating members of the church into the, the mysteries of the kingdom, the glories of God, the endowment of power from on high. I think there are some interesting parallels between what Joseph preached in the grove that day, uh, what he's learning from God and revealing in the endowment, and what we see here in section 129. It even has something to do with what we're going to study later in section 132 about plural marriage. Because it was so countercultural. Uh, it was truly putting Joseph's, actually putting his life in danger. He did say that to one man to whom he revealed this, this doctrine or this principle, saying, I, I realize I'm putting my life in my hands uh, as I reveal this to you. So please do not betray me to mine enemies. Joseph understood all too well just how difficult this doctrine was going to be to live. And as someone who had been betrayed back in Missouri and spent five and a half months in prison uh, as a result, Joseph is really trying to understand who can I trust with revelation of a, of a sacred nature, like the endowment, or revelation of a shocking nature, like plural marriage. Uh, and who can I trust? It's interesting that section 129 in some ways is which heavenly messengers can I trust? And, and there in Nauvoo, there's also a challenge of not just heavenly messengers, but earthly associates. Which of them can I trust as well? 
And so those that are initiated into the endowment and have proven a certain level of faith and faithfulness. Remember, this is the same time also that Freemasonry is, is very popular in America. Many of the founding fathers were Freemasons. There was a Masonic Lodge in Nauvoo, and, many, and Joseph Smith and many of the other saints were initiated into the orders of Freemasonry as well. It was a fraternal organization, fraternal meaning brotherhood. If you've ever driven into uh, some small town in, in middle America, you'll often see this sign, you know, welcome to Smallsville, USA. And there'll be all these symbols all over the sign to show, oh, we have an Elks Club, and we have a Lions Club, and we have a Rotary Club, and we have a Shriners Club. There's all these clubs. And especially as you've left England with its hierarchical society, where everyone knows exactly where they belong, in America, we're going to level the playing field and get rid of all those, those titles and things. And, well, where do I fit? And what kinds of groups do I belong to? Uh, and those kinds of fraternal organizations grew and took the place of some of that, including the Freemasons. And as Joseph is learning about Freemasonry, it's like it clicks for him, thinking, ah, their content is off. But their delivery mechanism, that, that could really help. Because what the Freemasons are trying to initiate people into through their rituals and rites was something they considered sacred and serious and not to be taken lightly. It was a way to be able to discern or to tell, are you initiated into these same things as I am? And to recognize those that could be trusted. Well, again, the content is different. What Joseph was trying to teach through the endowment was very different from what the Masons were trying to teach through their ritual. But the ritual in terms of, wow, they do have, the delivery mechanism is a fascinating thing to help people understand just how important, just how sacred. There's a reverence, a respect that comes with ritual. And the way that it was done, that, I'll put it this way, people sometimes, I, I work with people that are struggling in their faith, and sometimes, not often, uh, this seems to be a smaller concern, but some are, wait, that isn't, isn't the temple just Freemasonry uh, reheated? I said, hmm, no. Uh, and the irony is, it's really shocking to people now if it's the first time that's ever crossed their mind. The irony is, so many of those first endowed members of the church in Nauvoo also happen to be Freemasons. So if anybody's going to see the borrowings of the packaging, again, not the content, but the packaging, the delivery mechanism, it's going to be those who were first in doubt. And you can picture them going, I mean, if there was a problem, they'd be like, uh, Joseph, didn't you just steal this from the lodge down the street? Uh, they would have been very aware of any kind of borrowings, but they had no problem with it at all. Said, ah, yes, that mechanism is, is an, a good one. But the content of the endowment, wow, that puts Freemasonry to shame. I sometimes laugh and think, can you imagine a hundred years from now. Assume that the Boy Scouts of America are, are forgotten in popular memory. And then imagine some, some intrepid historian is, is trying to understand how youth were helped by church programs in the, in the 20th century, and they stumble across a Boy Scout handbook. And they realize that, wait a minute, this is exactly what the young men were doing back in the 20th century uh, in, in the church. Oh no! Uh, the church is just borrowing, uh, plagiarizing from, from the Boy Scouts of America. And we would laugh and go, um, it's a great or it was a great delivery mechanism. Uh, the, the content, our content is different in some ways. We have so much more as far as Aaronic Priesthood is concerned. But what was the goal of the Aaronic Priesthood? To help 
to, well, first and foremost, to administer the ordinances of salvation of the preparatory gospel, right? We talked about that in section 84. But for the young men themselves, it's to help them become men of God, to grow up in God. And there's a delivery mechanism with badges and, and you know, merit badges and beads and, and all those kinds of programs that will help them develop those kinds of skills and attributes and so on. Don't, don't worry. We have changed the packaging now with a children and youth program. Uh, but the, the goal is the same. I, I hope the analogy works, the, 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 or it helps at least. There's a difference between content and packaging. There's a difference between principles and goals and methods to get there. And, and the kinds of things we're talking about here with, with the, the endowment versus Freemasonry and what's similar and what is different I, section 129, I think, is a place to just drop some hints and help people see, ah, okay, I'm trying to discern and learn to discern, and not just truth from error, but also people. Uh, and, and Joseph at the time needed to understand who can I trust with something as misunderstandable and something as volatile as plural marriage when we get to 132. There's going to be some considerable overlap between these kinds of realities. Beyond that, there's also a level of applicability that helps us discern truth from error in any administration, any source of knowledge. And it's this. If I was trying to expand Section 129 to make it more relevant to all of us, I, and I've said this to my students, and I think they found it helpful. Imagine any source, just like Apocrypha, right? Uh, any movie, any play, any, any philosophy, any class that you take in school, uh, any book that you happen to read or TV program that you watch, what principle, what parts of it come from God and what do not? There's three things that I think Section 129 teaches us. Number one, offer it your hand. There's something about handshakes, and I know in COVID days it's, that's... I wonder if we're ever going to get back to that. I don't know. Offer them a fist bump. Offer them an elbow. Offer them an open heart and an open mind is what's, I think, being suggested here. I think too often we get accused of being so close-minded or narrowly focused that you Latter-day Saints don't, aren't open to anyone's perspective but your own. And that's definitely a problem, a bottom-up problem, not a top-down one. The apostles, it's amazing how often they quote in general conference non-Latter-day Saints. Uh, or just meeting people that have diverse views and various perspectives. I just love the fact that, I mean, to see the picture of the, the president of the church and the pope together, I mean, that, that thrills me to no end as one who loves interfaith work. They are willing to shake the hand to one another. And I think on our part, if we can develop an openness to perspectives that might be different, uh, that doesn't mean we accept everything uh, uncritically. And the same when it comes to school and, and entertainment and so on. But it's okay to put to extend the hand. I am open to learn from you. There's the holy envy that comes up in interfaith kind of work. But to, to offer the hand, to extend the open heart, I, I'd love to learn. Now, there's still the need to be discerning, right? Because not everything that comes is going to be true. Uh, and so what do we do next? First, I have an openness to truth, wherever it might come from. 
And our theology allows for that. It was Joseph Smith and Brigham Young both basically taught that, hey, if it's true, it belongs in the, the restored gospel, whether it started here or not. We have that expansive kind of theology. So oh, extend your hand. Second is, well, how do I discern now that I'm so open to it? Part of it is, what's the common denominator as far as extend the hand and if it's an angel uh, with a physical body versus a just man made perfect versus uh, uh, the devil who is appearing as an angel of light? The question is, what do you feel? In verse 5, if it's an angel, you will feel his hand. In verse 8, the devil will extend his hand and you won't feel anything. I would simply say, as you are now open to outside perspectives, what do you feel as you learn those things? You see, it's not just an open ear or an open mind. It's an open heart, but open to the Spirit's promptings. It's confirming power. It's through the, and that was the key in section 91 also, right? That it's the Holy Ghost that will help you discern what is true from God and what's an interpolation of men. And with that spirit, you can then take benefit from the things that do come from God. What do you feel as you learn those things? And then the third key is, and this one's a tricky one, but in verse 8, when you see the devil extending the hand and hoping you fall for it, he's deceiving you. He is the arch deceiver. And so I'm going to pretend to be an angel of light. Angels have bodies. Mm, I've always wanted to have one. Think of the gathering swine. I'll take a pig body over no body at all. Uh, and so I'm going to act like I have a body, even though I don't. There is this deception on his part. As opposed to verse 7, where it's a just man made perfect, I'm not going to extend the hand because that would be deceptive. I don't have a hand to extend. But I do have a message to extend, so here it is. So if one key is be open, a second key is pay attention to your feelings, a third key is make sure you're not deceived. Now, I know what you're thinking, you're like, wait a minute, isn't that circular reason? How do I know when I'm not de deceived? Well, I'm not deceived. <laughs> that doesn't help me. Well, let me put it this way. In Joseph Smith Matthew, when, when, when the signs of the times are being repeated by the Savior, and deception is one of the, the number ones. I mean, I, can, I still consider deception of the elect the, the defining sign of the times. No wonder so many people seem to be falling away from the church with a shaken faith. Well, in verse 37 of Joseph Smith Matthew, it tells us how to avoid that deception. And whoso treasureth up my word shall not be deceived. That's it. If you'll treasure up my word, I mean, we call it the standard works for a reason. They are the standard for our works or the works of anyone else. Uh, in other faith traditions, they usually call it the canon. And a canon comes from a Greek word uh, for a measuring stick. And so it's the same issue. Is this doctrine, is this idea, is this philosophy measuring up to the things I already know to be true? Canonized scripture. I mean, I do that all the time as I'm reading, as I'm listening, as I'm open to things, does that agree with the things I already know to be true from Scripture? Now, what I love about this is if the feeling is the heart, then the not being deceived because I know Scripture, I've treasured it up, and that doesn't agree, then that's more of a mental, logical, rational, it doesn't fit with Scripture. And if you remember section 8 of the Doctrine and Covenants, as the saints are first learning how Revelation works, the Lord defines it. It's when I speak to the mind and the heart. Well, I see those same body parts at work in section 129. I can, be I can afford to be open to people's perspective and offer them the hand. 
because my mind and heart will be fully engaged in the discerning process. The mind, does it stack up to scripture? Does it fit the box, the shape of the canon? Or am I being deceived? Logically, that'll help me understand that. And then my feelings. Is the Holy Ghost confirming this truth? Like I said, I think section 129 has a lot more relevance than we sometimes give it credit for. Now, move forward to section 130. And in 130, we have, as it says in the, in the chapter heading, items of instruction. Uh, President Hinckley used to give talks every once in a while on General Conference that were totally disconnected, and he was unapologetic about it. It was like this potpourri. I'm going to throw out this, and then, okay, new subject, and then throw out that. And it's like, okay, new subject. It's almost like a State of the Union address where we just got a bunch of stuff to cover, so let me, let me dump it all out to you. Well, uh, Joseph Smith and several others, William Clayton, Orson Hyde, they traveled to Ramus, Illinois, uh, a branch of the church, that's what Ramus means, is branch in Latin, uh, outside of Nauvoo to go share the gospel. Uh, at one point, they're even staying at Joseph's sister's home, Sophronia. I wish we knew more about Joseph's sisters and their experience throughout church history. But uh, what's happening here is Joseph has, they've been preaching that day, Orson Hyde has given some, uh, a message. Orson was incredible. Uh, it's very gifted as far as intellect is concerned, but he made some mistakes in his sermon as far as Joseph Smith was concerned. He preached that morning on a passage from the first epistle of John and the gospel of John, both of which had to do with a visitation of the Lord. And he had spiritualized it, uh, and, and Joseph was much more keen on literalizing it. Uh, that was the reality of it. And so he said, as they're hanging out at Sophronia's home, do you mind if I offer some correction on what you taught this morning? Now, that could be embarrassing, especially for someone as well-educated and intelligent as Orson Hyde. And yet, humbly, he said to Joseph, corrections, oh, they would be thankfully received. I wish we were more open to that. Oh, I didn't understand. I made a mistake. I'm doing the best that I can, uh, following the light and truth that I've received. If, if my fingerprints... Uh, smudged some of the divine fingerprints, then please help me burnish it, uh, you know, wi wipe them off. Remember, humanity, divinity is our, is our contrary to prove. Well, Joseph was, was going to help uh, Orson prove his contrary. Little too much humanity there. Let's reinsert a bit of divinity, shall we? And he's totally open to it. And so in the first three verses, we see Joseph clarifying what Orson had taught. And then in 4 through 11, we see a different subject. And then 12 through 17, we see a different one. And then 18 and 19 has one. And 2021 has one. And 2023. So again, this potpourri, rapid fire, let's just give out a lot of items of instruction. Now, verse 1, 2, 3, this first one for, for Orson. When the Savior shall appear... We shall see him as he is. We shall see that he is a man like ourselves. Now, the first half of that verse comes straight out of one of the passages that Orson Hyde was, was talking about. In 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. It's like we're already children of God. Yeah, but you ain't seen nothing yet. Just imagine what we'll be as we continue to grow up in God. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. That's where you get this first phrase. When we see the Savior, we'll see him as he is. But the way John describes it is, we are like him. And what I love about 130 verse 1 is the reverse is also true. He is like us. 
That's what the incarnation was all about, the Word being made flesh. That's what the condescension was all about, that he would come down to be with us and like us. Well, in a similar vein, on the other side of things, it wasn't just that he came down to be like us. He's going to bring us up to be like him. And that is still going to be, a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. It's still going to be in resurrected glory. We'll see that confirmed at the end of this revelation, where it's reiterated that, that, that Jesus Christ has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as ours. That there is a similarity uh, in, in core ways between the divinity of Christ and the humanity of each of us, once that humanity is swallowed up in divinity through the resurrection. It's a beautiful reality as far as the physicality of the resurrection is concerned. But even more than physicality, there's a, a spirituality here that I hope we grow into. That if we see that he's a man like us, and have we become a man or woman like him? When Paul talks about taking upon ourselves the mind of Christ, do we think like he thinks? Do we treat others as he would treat them? There's a fascinating verse in the 18th Psalm where it says, With the merciful thou wilt show thyself merciful. With an upright man thou wilt show thyself upright. With the pure thou wilt show thyself pure. And with the froward thou wilt show thyself froward. Now some might simply say, isn't that just the law of the harvest? Well, yes. We reap what we sow. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured unto you again. Uh, we are judged the way we judge others. But I do love the thought based on section 130, verse 1, this, the similarity between the God we worship and the person that we are striving to become through his grace. He is a man like us. We are men and women like him. And with that in mind, read verse 2, and that same sociality which exists among us here will exist among us there, only it will be coupled with eternal glory, which glory we do not now enjoy. Now, I think I've only ever seen verse 2 explained in terms of uh, oh, mortal sociality or kind of the horizontal type of me and friends and family. And it definitely applies to that. I want to say something to that in just a moment. But in the context of verse 1, where the first John passage is being wrestled with, and then in verse 3, where the John 14 passage is being wrestled with, those are the two that Orson Hyde is, is delivering his sermon on. Well, if verse 2 is caught right between those two bookends, You'd think that it's in that same vein of thought that Joseph is, is revealing this, which is a sociality not horizontal with fellow human beings, but a vertical sociality with the Father and the Son. And, and while the other applies, I love the thought of the same sociality we have here with Christ will exist there, but it'll be coupled with glory just infused with greater power and light as we have more fully become like him. He's the author and finisher of our faith, and he's not yet finished. And so, to, But to think of the relationship I have with him now, it actually motivates me to want to improve that infinitely, since someday it will be improved, glorified. But if it's a difference in degree and not a difference in kind, then what's my sociality with the Savior like right now? Do I understand 
his will for me? Do I, do I have the mind of Christ? Am I developing the attributes of Christ? Do I feel a connection to him in such a way that I want to be him to other people and help people come to know him because they happen to know me? That's the kind of sociality I want. I want it. I know I'll have it then if I can learn to develop it now. And so let's work on that. Let's also work on our horizontal relationships with one another. Because, I mean, I'm an, I'm an introvert that has to pretend to be an extrovert in class. <laughs> my, my students always laugh when I, when I admit just how introverted I can be. Uh, but to see then the need to reach out, and honestly, the easiest time for me to be an extrovert is when the Holy Ghost is with me. The Spirit just lifts me outside of myself, and the Spirit can energize me as I meet with people uh, and, and be able to discharge that energy in love. But to have that kind of sociality, I have felt that in, in bishoprics that I've served in. I've felt that in presidencies. I've felt that with youth that I've, that I've led. I've felt that with seminary and institute classes, ones that I just joke and say, you know, we need to run down to the temple and be sealed as a class before the semester ends so we can't be broken up by the end of a, of a school year. Like, we can do that? Like, no, sorry. But we've had such meaningful relationships. I want those to, to be perpetuated in eternity, and they will be, and even more glorious than what we have already. A few years ago, an old college friend called and said, I'm, I'm going to be in town bringing a child to, uh, to go check out BYU. And I thought, whoa, we're old. That's where we met, and now we're bringing our children there? Wow. And he said, can we get together and hang out? I said, I'd love to. Now, we, we sat down together. There were several of us, and, and we, were, we were eating dinner together, getting to know his family and his children and so on. And I, it, it struck us all. There were three of us that had just been really close uh, as freshmen in college. And it was like, wait a minute. The sum total of our friendship lasted freshman year. I mean, at max, we were friends for like eight months. And it's been 25 years since we've hung out together. But it's like we picked up right where we left off. And th there was something about that sociality, which was glorious. And, and just the intervening time didn't matter at all. We were freshmen again, which was probably embarrassing to his kids. Uh, but just to see how quickly you pick up over the distance of time because of the experiences you once shared. To think of mortal life and the kinds of almost momentary connections we've formed, but formed on a basis of, of fellow service or Christian love and to, I don't know, I, I can't wait for the resurrection to see people I met in the mission field or old mission companions and just people I've served with and students that I've taught, uh, the, the, the strangers that are now friends that I'm meeting uh, as you come up to me in, at the gas station or the grocery store and say, hello, Brother Halverson. And those have been thrilling experiences for me because there's a sociality there that I know is glorious now and will be even more glorious then. Uh, in fact, thanks to Unshaken, I got to reconnect with my first mission president uh, just a couple of days ago. And again, it had been 25 years plus. But the conversation we had with my mission president and his wife was glorious. And to just remember who they are and who I was and, and the lessons that they taught me and in bending that twig to, to grow in the right direction as a missionary. Oh, that sociality, I am grateful that God preserves those. 
we will see eternal family taught in 132. Well, we're already seeing eternal sociology uh, and sociality here in section 130. Verse 3, then, he gives us the other bookend of this short item of instruction, the other verse that Orson uh, Hyde had, had misunderstood slightly. The appearing of the Father and the Son in that verse is a personal appearance. And the idea that the Father and the Son dwell in a man's heart is an old sectarian notion and is false. You see, if you go back to John 14 itself, in fact, rewind a little bit. Start in verse 21, and this is the passage in question. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Then Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, so the other Judas, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? It's like, how are we going to see and not everyone else? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. See, that's the passage that Orson is, is wrestling with, and he's spiritualizing it. I mean, how are we going to see and not the world? If the second coming, for example, is every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, or as the light shineth from the east, even unto the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. If everyone's going to see that, then how, what kind of personal appearance are you talking about? Now, Orson Hyde assumes, and honestly, I think his, his intellect is getting in the way here, because it's the thought of, well, that can't possibly be literal, right? That, that's, that seems irrational. It must be a figurative, uh, let's kind of water it down and figuralize it and just make this a, a, a feeling that you have. They dwell in the heart. So here's the appearance of Jesus Christ. Well, Joseph from personal experience knows that this can be very literal. Yes, there are ways that certain promises can be, can be a figurative fulfillment, okay? Uh, but that doesn't negate the possibility of a literal fulfillment as well. Sometimes it's just the old sectarian notions that, that force everything into that purely logical or rational kind of approach. I see that in certain branches of Christianity or Protestantism particularly today when they'll say things like, oh, the resurrection of Jesus, yeah, didn't, did, could, didn't happen literally because it couldn't. That's non-scientific, okay? And so what did it mean? Well, the apostles kept the spirit of Jesus alive through the New Testament. There's the resurrection of Christ. Or the second coming, yeah, it can't be literal. That's impossible. And so it's when we achieve peace on earth and finally reach social justice, ah, yes, the spirit of Jesus has returned to the earth. There's the second coming. Well, I'm grateful that they're looking forward to those kinds of possibilities and are pushing themselves to make a difference in the world to see that that happens. But you don't have to figuralize or spiritualize everything. Those are old sectarian notions. They're false, or at least incomplete, because the resurrection of Jesus is literal. Handle me and see. We just saw that in 129. The second coming is literal. We got missionaries mowing the lawn at Adam on Diamond, my friends. <laughs> okay, it, there, it's a literal thing. And this appearance of the Father and the Son coming from one who had had a literal experience of their visitation himself as a 14-year-old boy in 1820, is reassuring us that this is a personal appearance as well, a literal one. 
Now, I can't speak to that because I haven't had that literal experience. But I do believe in its possibility, its probability, its promise. As the Lord explained back in section 88, if you'll have an eye single to his, his glory, if you'll sanctify yourself, then the time will come that he will unveil his face to you. It'll be in his own time, in his own way, and according to his own will. But that can include a personal appearance. And like I said, who better to confirm that than Joseph Smith himself? In a more general vein, I just, again, a caution, beware of figuralizing everything. There's, I mean, beware of making everything literal also, right? Nicodemus, I have to be born again. My mom's not going to like that. Oh, come on. Uh, there's a problem in both. And so, again, the Holy Ghost will be our guide to know what's literal and what's figurative. Amazingly, this one's literal. Beautiful thought. Second item of instruction. This one comes actually from William Clayton. He had a question. So verse 4, in answer to that question, is not the reckoning of God's time, angels' time, prophets' time, and man's time according to the planet on which they reside? I mean, William Clayton must have been a deep thinker. So here he is wondering about the, the orbits of things and how does time work on that? I mean, if a day with, with man is just one rotation of the earth and a year for man is one time around the sun, how does that work I mean, on other places? Angels, gods, prophet, man, this kind of chain of being. I mean, you see in Second Peter and in the book of Abraham, which Joseph has already translated by now, uh, that a thousand years with man is as a day with God. And so hmm, time does seem to be relative in this. And sure enough, the answer comes, verse 5. I answer, yes. But there are no angels who minister to this earth, but those who do belong or have belonged to it. Hmm. So already you see Joseph kind of, yes, answering William's question, but then shifting it to a bigger issue that he wanted to convey. Yes, time is relative, William. And you see that in, in Abraham 3 with these orbits uh, and Kolob or how close to God and the timing of all these kinds of things. I will say, by the way, that just in general, if time flies when you're having fun and it drags when you aren't, then there's still some truth in this idea of is, is time relative to, to where you happen to be or what you happen to be doing or who you happen to be doing it with. If we're working on sociality, hmm, that time flies. And especially if we're working on sociality with God, the closer I am to God, the time, the more eternal things seem to be. And, and I think there's some truth to that. But then, like I said, this shift towards not just the timing for these kinds of beings, including angels, but let me talk a little bit more about angels for a moment here. Verse 5, like we said, those who minister on this earth are those who belong to it. That to me speaks something like we saw back in verse 1 about this connection between Jesus Christ and the rest of us as far as how we see ourselves and how we see him. Part of the beauty of the condescension of Christ is he gets us because he put upon himself our flesh, our human experience. I love the thought of angels who are also ministering to us and also delivering messages to us, understanding our, our earthly context. There's something about going to mom and dad or grandma and grandpa and them being able to say, I was in your shoes once. I understand your circumstances, your context. Mine was slightly different, but not dramatically so. And for an angel to say, yep, I get your world. It was the one I belonged to also. Uh, this relevance, I think, is powerful. Then verse 6, 
Just because they belong here or belonged here, this was their earth too, doesn't mean they're here now. Verse 6, the angels do not reside on a planet like this earth. Well, where do they dwell then? Verse 7 answers, they reside in the presence of God, on a globe like a sea of glass and fire, where all things for their glory are manifest, past, present, and future, and are continually before the Lord. Now we saw this back with that Q&A, here's another one, but that Q&A in section 77 about the book of Revelation. Because in Revelation chapter 4, when it describes the throne of God and what is before him is this sea of glass and fire, well, the angels are there. I mean, we saw the, the hosts of heaven praising God. We saw these beasts with the four faces or the four types of beasts that were there, right? We saw the 24 elders casting their crown before the feet of God. You're getting a hint of that here in verse 7. Back then we talked about the fusion of all of our experiences. Every grain of sand melting together to form this sea of glass. No wonder all things are known. Because we can have perfect empathy for everyone's experience. These angels are seeing all things past, present, and future. No wonder they will have messages to bring to us that can't see things quite so clearly. Who see through our glass darkly instead of uh, fire and, and, and crystal. In verse 8, he expands upon that. The place where God resides is a great Urim and Thummim. If Urim means lights and Thummim means perfections in Hebrew, if Urim and Thummim was given to the high priest to aid in revelation, so he can see things past, present, and future more clearly, so that he can understand the will of God. Well, imagine that's everything. I mean, we live in a day that almost everything is now becoming a screen. And it seems like when, they're, when they show kind of oh, what they're perceiving the future to be, where almost everything is a touch screen, or everything is, or even like, I don't know, Iron Man, where it's just all this stuff in the air and you're just moving things around and hologram kind of whatever it is. Well, imagine being able to access knowledge wherever you happen to be, to be living in the middle of it all and kind of move all those things and see all those things. Well, that's the presence of God, where all things can be known. It is a great Urim and Thummim. Verse 9, this earth will be one of those. This earth in its sanctified and immortal state. We talk about it receiving its paradisical glory. Well, when it becomes the celestial kingdom, it will be made like unto crystal and will be a Urim and Thummim to the inhabitants who dwell thereon, those who belonged here, just like those angels. Whereby all things pertaining to an inferior kingdom or all kingdoms of a lower order will be manifest to those who dwell on it. And this earth will be Christ's. Remember back in section 76, that those in a higher kingdom can minister to those in a lesser kingdom? Well, we can see all things pertaining to those inferior kingdoms. Upon this, this sea of glass and fire, this celestialized earth, which is its own Urim and Thummim. Now let's make it even more personal. From the, the sphere in which God dwells, a Urim and Thummim, to our celestialized earth, a Urim and Thummim, to a personal Urim and Thummim that will help us get there. Verse 10, then the white stone mentioned in Revelation 2.17 will become a Urim and Thummim to each individual who receives one, whereby things pertaining to a higher order of kingdoms will be made known. We see lesser kingdoms in 9, we see higher kingdoms in 10. There's just something about eternal progression and getting to a point where we are in a sphere where that eternal progression is made possible. 
We'll see that in section 131 and 132. That's the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. That's exaltation. And in the meantime, to have this white stone promised the faithful. In fact, promised those who overcome. If you read Revelation 2 and 3, each of the, these little mini letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor that, that John is writing to, at the end of each one of those little mini letters, it's, or these mini messages, there's a promise to those who overcome. And to him who overcometh will I give a white stone, it says in one of them. Uh, to another, uh, I will give a, to, to rule with an iron rod, or I will give to him who overcometh to be arrayed in white raiment. By the way, to those who have eyes to see, all of those seven promises, seven totality, completeness, perfection, all of those are temple promises. It's, it's amazing. Kind of what we saw in 129 of have you been initiated into these truths and this knowledge? It's actually a beautiful phrase in Ephesians where he, he calls it the, the fellowship of his mystery. There's something about that that I think is fascinating. A fellowship of mystery. I have felt things like you have felt. It's one of those great connections of meeting Latter-day Saints wherever they happen to be in the world. It's like, you have a testimony of the same things I have a testimony of. You have, we are part of a fellowship of Christ's mystery. Things that are only revealed through the Holy Ghost. And so to share in that, all of those who overcome the world will be given these blessings. Go back and reread Revelation 2 and 3. And all of those seven promises are temple-based. It's the fellowship of the mystery. And one of them, as described here, is this personal Urim and Thummim. Verse 11, it's explained further. A white stone is given to each of those who come into the celestial kingdom, that ultimate Urim and Thummim, whereon is a new name written, which no man knoweth, save he that receiveth it. The new name is the key word. Again, what we just saw back in 129, three grand keys, whereby you may know here a key word that happens to be a new name. That's one of the blessings promised to those who overcome in the book of Revelation as well. Powerful things. And uh, for sacred reasons, I will leave it at that. Verse 12 begins another item of, of instruction. And this one has to do with the timing. We just saw timing in the previous one about what earth do, what do you dwell on. But here, the timing of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Joseph says, I prophesy in the name of the Lord God that the commencement of the difficulties which will cause much bloodshed previous to the coming of the Son of Man will be in South Carolina. Now, we saw that back in section 87, this, this revelation on war that Joseph received on Christmas Day of all times, right? The celebration of the Prince of Peace. Well, to get to that place of peace and the coming of the Prince of Peace, we have to pass through war along the way. And as he talked about, it will... The slave issues and the challenges there, and it will then expand. Uh, the North-South conflict civil war will then expand across the ocean, and Great Britain and other nations will call upon other nations. Now we're starting to see the kind of alliances that, that formed and caused World War I and World War II. From there, uh, war will be poured out upon all nations. We see wars and rumors of wars, which describes the war on terror really, really well, or terrorism in general. It, it's all preparing the earth. I mean, crescendo up to Armageddon, the ultimate war to end all wars, and then on to Adam on Diamon. To see the, the difficulties, I mean, you kind of work your way backwards. His question is about the, the coming of Christ. 
will back up a step. There are going to be difficulties and bloodshed will back up a step. Where will all of that commence? And with incredible confidence, he prophesies in the name of the Lord God, it's going to start in South Carolina. And sure enough, where did the Civil War begin officially? Fort Sumter, just off the Charleston coast in South Carolina. Verse 13, it may probably arise through the slave question. Now, that, that was, that's a good guess, okay? Uh, it's interesting, the confidence of verse 12, I prophesy in the name of the Lord God, with the, I'm not totally sure, but this is what I expect will be. It may probably arise through the slave question. Uh, this is a voice declared to me while I was praying earnestly on the subject, December 25th, 1832. Again, that's the section 87. I'm always grateful that Joseph tends to be very clear on what he absolutely knows comes from God. I prophesy in the name of the Lord. And what I, I don't totally know this for sure. I'm doing the best that I can. Uh, and that's going to be interesting when we get to 132 also. Things Joseph absolutely knows he has to do. Uh, and others that I'm not sure. And so we're going to do the best that we can. I mean, we saw the line upon line growth of understanding of baptisms for the dead last week in 127 and 128. Or and even the week before in 124. And just we're slowly, okay, this is how we're supposed to do it. Okay. He gave us a direction and then some clarification later on. Once we showed our willingness to obey based on what we had, we stepped, we followed the light, stepped into the darkness, and the light continued to follow. That's part of a life of faith as well. Now, speaking of praying earnestly on a subject, like he says in 13, 14 is the subject that seems to be on Joseph's mind frequently. I was once praying very earnestly to know the time of the coming of the Son of Man when I heard a voice repeat the following. Now, we'll get to that voice in just a moment. But can you picture a prophet praying earnestly to know something from Heavenly Father? That describes Spencer W. Kimball in 1978. It sure sounds like it describes President Nelson like every night and into the wee hours of the morning today as Revelation continues to come and, and wake him up and he's writing on his little pet, uh, pad of paper next to the bedside. Uh, praying earnestly to know. And what's on Joseph's mind? When are you going to come? Especially with all the opposition and persecution that we're going through. How long, how long, O oh Lord, he asked in Liberty Jail, right? That was on the saint's mind frequently. Not only that, but what's happening in this time period, 1843, one of the most popular religious movements of the time was called, were the Millerites. And it wasn't a separate church, but within all kinds of different Protestant denominations, there were Millerites. William Miller was a, a, a farmer, basically. He'd been a skeptic, actually, uh, disbelieved in anything, but had had this, um, this born-again experience with returning to the Bible. And, but from his, his rationalist approach, his, his enlightenment of empiricism, which had made skepticism seem like such a better option for him, he still brought that enlightenment rationale back to the faith and thought there has to be a way to figure out the second coming. If we can kind of do the math right, uh, and see prophecies from the Old and New Testament, for example, about time, times, and half a time. If we take uh, every day mentioned and make that a year, it kind of goes back to what, what the, the question that was answered earlier about time and where it is and whose it is that we're talking about. Well, William Miller, Miller did all this math. And based on what he, what he thought he had, he said, 1843, the same year of this revelation, Jesus is going to come. 
and he spreads it all over the place. And that belief and that, that enthusiasm spreads like wildfire to the point that people are like selling their farms and, and their belongings because what's the point? I, you know, don't go to college, don't prepare for a job. He's coming in 1843. Uh, when it doesn't occur, William Miller is sent scrambling and kind of checks his math again and, and thinks, oh, okay, well, maybe it was this instead of that. I forgot to carry the one. Uh, so it's 1844, actually. And so again, all this hope and all this desire. And you better believe the saints are hearing this. And Joseph is hearing this and wondering about it and praying earnestly, is it now? When's it going to be? The scriptures say that no man knows the day nor the hour. And you'd hope that I mean, there was a talk that Elder Ballard gave at BYU once about the second coming, and he said, no man knows the day nor the hour, and that's still the case. Uh, I've actually asked the rest of my brethren in the Quorum of the Twelve, do any of have you gotten a message? I, did I miss a meeting, <laughs> for example? Do you guys know? And he said to the BYU students, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, uh, none of us know, and with all humility, if we don't know, then nobody knows. Well, here's Joseph. Could it be that William Miller knows and I don't? Heavenly Father, if you're going to tell anybody, please, this, these are the latter-day saints. When's it going to come? Well, Jesus didn't come in 1844 either. Uh, and William Miller and the Millerites had, had more wrestling to do. Even in, in American religious history, it's called the Great Disappointment. Capital G, capital D, the Great Disappointment. And that's exactly what it was. Uh, they changed their perspective on a few things, said, I think our math is right, but our interpretation was wrong, that perhaps this is, oh, beginning the second coming in heaven and not yet on earth. This is where a lot of the Adventist uh, groups grew out of, Seventh-day Adventism and so on, uh, out of that great disappointment and, and trying to recalibrate things and make sense of what was going on. But for Joseph, when's it going to be? Well, an answer came. Not in the way he had expected. Definitely not as clear as a, a date to put, uh, you know, a sticker on the calendar. Verse 15, here was the Lord's answer. Joseph, my son. So here's some reassurance. If thou livest until thou art 85 years old, thou shalt see the face of the Son of Man. Therefore, let this suffice and trouble me no more on this matter. Yes, I guess he had been praying, not just earnestly, but maybe incessantly, a little too much. And the Lord's like, Joseph, that's enough. Uh, don't, don't keep asking me. Trouble me no more. Let this answer suffice. And the answer is, if you live to be 85. Now, that's a little bit cryptic. Yeah, you think? Because Joseph is left wondering, verse 16, I was left thus without being able to decide whether this coming referred to the beginning of the millennium, like the actual second coming we normally think of, or to some previous appearing, since Joseph has had a lot of those, 1820, 1836, and others in between and beyond, or, final option, ooh, I don't like this one, whether I should die and thus see his face. I mean, all he said back in verse 15 was, thou shalt see the face of the Son of Man. Oh, does that mean you're coming to me or me coming to you? Yikes. Or you coming to all of us. And how does the Lord respond to that, that question? Basically with a shrug and a smile and this sense of quit asking me. Uh, this is one of those examples where I feel that I, God must have a sense of humor. I mean, I've always felt that based on some of the things he creates and, and some of the people that are, <laughs> that are here upon the earth. Uh, but to think... 
this almost tongue-in-cheek humor of Joseph, quit bugging me about this. How you live is what matters most. And if I give you a due date, you'll know how long you can procrastinate. I'm, there's a purpose why I, not, I don't give anyone the day nor the hour. I want you to all be prepared and always be prepared. So just go prepare. He actually does a similar thing with some similar humor as I read it back in the book of Daniel. Daniel is this, you know, apocalyptic vision and so much about the second coming and the final days. Daniel is the Old Testament's book of Revelation. Okay, Ezekiel could, could vie for that honor as well. But in, in Daniel, there's a place where Daniel is being shown all these final days kinds of things. And it's like all this time has to pass before this comes. And eager to know more, just like Joseph Smith, Daniel asks God, well, how much time until that happens? How much time till those things come? This is Daniel 12, 6 through 9. How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And the Lord's answer, like, oh, how much time? You want to know, you know the time? Okay, fine. It shall be for a time, times, and a half. And you, you picture Daniel going, wait, what? Time, times, and a half? And, and that's the language that's used elsewhere in Scripture, too. It's where we get this idea of three and a half. Time, one. Times, there's two more. Half a time, there's half. So half of seven is three and a half. That's the, the period of, of the famine in, for Elijah. And so famine in the land, apostasy. Three and a half becomes a great symbol for the apostasy. Uh, on the way towards a, re a restoration of perfect things. There's the, we're halfway to the seven. Okay, does that make sense? Uh, but I love the way the Lord says it to Daniel. Oh, time. You want to know about time? Fine. Time, times, half a time, take a time, whatever time you want. And Daniel's left like, what are you, huh? In fact, the way he says it in Daniel 12 is hilarious. He says, and I heard, but I understood not. <laughs> yeah, you think? Then said I, oh my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? Please, I, I didn't understand what you said first. And the Lord's response, go thy way, Daniel. The words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. You see the way the Lord treats Daniel is the same as the Lord treats Joseph Smith here. Some kind of cryptic answer. Oh, if you live to be 85, oh, time, times, half a time. What? I don't understand. Could it be this, that? I don't understand what you mean. I heard the words, but I didn't get it. Quit bugging me about it. No, the Lord isn't bugged. Could trouble me no more concerning the matter. Let this suffice. How you live matters so much more than when you live. So live the gospel and do it now. Now, verse 17, Joseph does give at least one last oh, impression. He says, I believe the coming of the Son of Man will not be any sooner than that time. So I, we got so much work to do. We're feeling urgency. We're trying to build temples. But the Lord has laid out quite the to-do list for us. And I doubt we'll be able to pull that off before, I mean, what, he is, what is he now in his late 30s? Uh, I could use another 50 years. That sounds great. Uh, imagine what Joseph could have done with 50 more years of, of revealing and of leading. That, that would have been incredible. And so he thinks it won't be any sooner than that. Well, as far as him literally seeing the face of Christ, it happened just the following year. 14 months later, almost 15, he sees the, the face of Christ as he is martyred in Carthage. But what is interesting is the saints still wondered about this passage because 
when would Joseph Smith have turned 85? 1890, which was a pivotal year in church history because that's when Wilford Woodruff receives this revelation that plural marriage has to end. See, so much of what we're seeing today does point forward to that 132 that we'll get to in a moment. But to see the saints, or even Wilfred Woodruff, if we can just hold out, there was so much anti-polygamy persecution, and the and leaders of the church in hiding, some in prison, uh, the church being threatened by the U.S. government to be uh, completely unincorporated, and, and even temples confiscated. It's like, if we can just hold out until the second coming, then the kingdoms of this world, including the United States of America, will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. We'll be okay if we can just make it till then. And I, I wonder, I do wonder just how much this revelation was on their minds of, is he going to come? And when it becomes clear in, in 1890, maybe that's the LDS version of the great disappointment. Uh, not that it was clearly set in stone, but maybe just this hope against hope. Can we just make it till then? And he still he still hadn't come. He wasn't coming then. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to figure out other solutions to be able to make it through all this. And we'll talk about that when we get to the first official declaration. Well, one another piece, an item of instruction, eighteen and nineteen is beautiful. Whatever principle of intelligence we attain unto in this life, it will rise with us in the resurrection. Some things we really can take with us. And intelligence is one of those. And that's not just book smarts or even street smarts. Remember section 93, the glory of God is intelligence. Or in other words, light and truth. Are you living these things? And is light being infused into your soul? Is truth woven into who you happen to be? That will go with you. It will rise. And 19, if a person gains more knowledge and intelligence in this life through his diligence and obedience than another, he will have so much the advantage in the world to come. Now, honestly, I've wondered all that this advantage entails. And I don't know all the answers there. Because part of me thinks, well, if it's eternal progression, as long as we reach the highest degree of the celestial kingdom, and progression is an eternal thing, well, does speed really matter then? Eventually, I'm going to get there as long as I'm progressing. But there is something about, and, and again, I don't even know the time side of things. Time was a question earlier in this revelation. And if all things are present before God, past, present, future, the sea of glass and fire, then even the speed whereby we attain those kinds of understandings, is that an issue? I, I don't know. I just want to, to push that word advantage and if we just think, oh, well, we got a head start uh, or, or what it, don't limit yourself to that. I, I don't know exactly what all of that advantage entails, but I feel it. I, I just, I sense that there's something about obtaining as much knowledge and intelligence here that somehow that will be advantageous to, to our, our fellow mortals here, the sociality that exists. Uh, to, to who we are now and who we will become, this, this, what we can bring with us will be, will be a, an eternal advantage to us. And so in this life, what must we do? Gain as much knowledge and intelligence as possible. Now, speaking of gaining knowledge, I remember taking the SAT and the ACT when I was in high school. I don't know, scary. But remember when you had to do those syllogisms? This is to that as this is to that. Those are, those are great because it really does stretch the mind to figure out relationships. 
Uh, some are pretty simple, right? D uh, dog is to puppy as cat is to, oh, kitten. So we're just, what relationship are we trying to see? Oh, the parent to child. And if I see the relationship in the first set, then I can guess the relationship, or I know the relationship in the second, and I can fill in the blank, okay? Well, imagine a syllogism. This is the celestial ACT uh, in verse 19 between words like knowledge and intelligence and words like diligence and obedience because those four words seem to be the key, the key uh, words vocabulary in verse 19. Well, how do they relate? And, and I would suggest, if I was to do a, a celestial syllogism, that knowledge is to diligence as intelligence is to obedience. Because the relationship that I'm seeing formed there is how do I obtain that thing? He wants us to obtain both knowledge and intelligence. Well, how do I do it? Oh, well, through diligence and obedience. Well, is there a, a link between those, those sets? And I believe there is. That I obtain knowledge through my diligence. That's my study. That's my hard work. That's me going to school. Uh, I, I obtain intelligence, the glory of God, light and truth, more than just book smarts or street smarts, but celestial smarts. Am I becoming like God, like Christ? Do I see him like he, he is? And is he, am I like becoming like him? Is that vertical sociality taking place? Is he infusing his glory into me? Am I living into who I really am? Since before spirit, I was intelligence. Hmm. Intelligence comes through obedience. It's how we react to light as it grows brighter and brighter unto the perfect day. It's how we react and respond to truth since Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Am I becoming like him? And only obedience will do that. It's not just what I learn, it's how I live. And, and I think that's where we miss something. When our secular studies are based in knowledge and diligence alone. There is so much more we can learn. I, I remember Clayton Christian saying that when he spoke at BYU once. Uh, and he said, BYU-Idaho, actually, I think. And he said, here's a Harvard business professor, one of the greatest business minds on planet Earth. And he says to the students there in Rexburg, Idaho, I wish I could teach my students at Harvard what I can teach you students here in Southeast Idaho. You have the Holy Ghost. You are striving for true intelligence that can only be gained through obedience to the word of God. He said to them, I, can't, I can only imagine what I could do at Harvard if people came with the gift of the Holy Ghost. If they sought to learn vertically and not just horizontally. If they coupled their incredible knowledge, tough to beat Harvard for that, with the intelligence that we gain through obedience to the commandments of God. I love that combination. Like we saw in section 129 about the mind and the heart, no deception because I've treasured up the words of Christ and, no, and, and true feeling of what the Spirit is confirming to my soul. What we saw in section 8, I will speak to the mind and the heart. Well, if you wanted to chart this, put it like this. The mind versus the heart. There you have knowledge to the mind and intelligence to the heart. Diligence for the mind, obedience for the heart. In other words, how you learn, there's mind. How you live, there's heart. Work, on the one hand, 
and worship on the other. Study versus submission. Education on one hand and consecration on the other. Or two of the, the massive work projects they wanted to be able to accomplish in Nauvoo, a university as well as a temple of God. To me, there's something powerful about, about Provo, Utah that has a temple right on campus, basically, for Brigham Young University. In Salt Lake, since I teach at the University of Utah, and I, and I have equal love for my cougars and my youths, uh, to see this is the place, Brother Brigham, setting his cane in the sand for the temple, but also establishing, within three years of setting foot in the valley, the University of Deseret, which is now the University of Utah. Temple, college, university, all the same. Even at BYU-Idaho. Who would have thought that a temple would someday be found in Rexburg, Idaho, which was such, such a small population? And now, as President Nelson just announced, a second temple in Rexburg North? When I drive through Rexburg, I think, is there even a North? Is, is Rexburg large enough to need a North? Well, the, the needs of the student body and the amazing saints there. Yes, there's, even if there's not a Rexburg North, there needs to be a Rexburg North temple. We need more. Uh, and, and there's just something beautiful, you know, Dixie College and the St. George Temple, Southern Utah University and the Cedar City Temple, Snow College and an Ephraim, Utah Temple, small towns, small colleges, beautiful temples of God. And to see more and more throughout the world, often cities that have a temple in them also happen to have a college or university in them. And to see the need to learn in the mind as well as in the heart, to have an education that we can then consecrate to God, to build up both our knowledge and our intelligence. What an advantage in the world to come as well as in the world right here. I love that verse. Then 20 and 21, another item of instruction. There is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of this world, upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. If we saw, here's another syllogism in a way, or at least a relationship. If knowledge comes from diligence and intelligence comes from obedience, well, blessedness comes from obedience to law as well. And that's the way law works. That's the way, there's again, the law of the harvest or even just the yo-yo principle. Whatever you send out is going to come back. And if I send out obedience, that what it brings back with it is blessedness. Justice demands that that's the case. Remember when we studied section 88 and saw law that protects and preserves and sanctifies. We talked about uh, President uh, Nelson as a young doctor trying to figure out the law of the kingdom of the human heart. And as long as we work within the law, then it, it, has to, it has to keep its own laws. And so justice demands that heart surgery works if we do it right. Or Elder Uchtdorf up in the plane, that aviation has to work as long as we function, as long as we keep its own rules. Well, similarly here, anytime I, I obtain a blessing, it comes by obedience to the law upon which it is predicated. Now, sometimes we can see clear parallels or connections. 
where God promises to open the windows of heaven and rebuke the devourer for our sake, if we will keep the law upon which it is predicated. And what was that one? The law of tithing. Or section 89, where we are promised health in the navel and marrow in the bones, uh, to run and not be weary and walk and not faint. Well, the word of wisdom, keeping our bodies pure and healthy, that, that's a, a fitting connection between obedience to law and the, and the blessing that comes as a result. I do wonder, though, too, if verse 21 suggests this kind of parallels and connections between specific laws, plural, and associated blessings, plural. I do wonder about 20, where there is a law, just one big law. Because sometimes we, we almost want to make connections ourselves. Like, if I'll do this, God, then I want this particular blessing. And mm, that's his prerogative, not ours. We don't tell him, this is the result I want based on the obedience that I'm offering. No, I just think there's, in addition to some very specific connections, like this is the blessing you'll receive for that law, I think also more generally speaking, there is a law, just one grand overarching law of obedience. And if you will obey God, he will bless you. That was King Benjamin's promise, right? As soon as we do that, he doth immediately bless us. It's just how it works. And if we will keep whatever law it might be, then that law God chooses to keep, I will always bless you for your obedience. It may not be the specific thing you were hoping for, but believe me, what I'm offering you is even better. If, if, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to those that ask him, that's the Lord's words in the New Testament, then of course I will give far better gifts than you possibly could. If your son or a neighbor comes and asks for us a bread, for bread, would you give them a stone? If they come asking for a, for a, a, a fish, would you give them a serpent? Of course not. In those kind of, if you're hungry, a, a stone is worthless and a serpent is worse than worthless. It's dangerous. God never gives you anything that is worthless or dangerous. If you want bread, he'll give you something. It just might not be the bread you're thinking of. But it will be more nourishing than whatever you happened to expect. That's going to be an important principle in section 132 also. We're learning eternal marriage. Wonderful. Oh, we're learning plural marriage. Not so wonderful. I'm not throwing stones. I'm not sicking serpents. I'm giving you bread that you need there is a law irrevocably decreed. You came to earth based on that law. Before the foundation of the world, I promised blessings for obedience. And you banked on that. You had faith in my promise before the foundation of the world. Don't lose faith in it now that you're here. Even when commandments are gut-wrenching, trust that blessings will flow. And they always do. The final thing he then shares in this incredible little revelation, 22 and 23, the father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, the son also. But the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. Were it not so, the Holy Ghost could not dwell in us. What I love about that passage is the date of this revelation is 1843. It's not 1820. So often we just assume, when we're trying to make sense of the first vision, it's like, what are the things that Joseph learned? 
And we always say, oh, we learned that the Father, he learned that the Father and the Son are separate and that they have physical bodies of flesh and bone. It's like, well, don't get ahead of yourself, okay? Remember when we talked about the first vision and just how out of the ordinary visionary experiences are, that it's even hard to make sense of what's happening in the moment. We saw those examples in Lehi and in Alma. We'll see it again later in Joseph Smith himself, where it's like, well, whether methought I saw or whether in the body or out of the body, I could not tell. That's Paul too. Uh, those that have visionary experience, it's so out of the ordinary. It's like, what's happening here? Uh, Joseph had an incredible experience in 1820 with the father and the son. But especially in his earliest account, what was he learning? That they love me and that they'll forgive me when I sin. Yes, there are bigger things that he grew into an understanding. Yeah, they said something about don't join any church, and so I didn't. But I didn't really know what I was supposed to do from there. That took the angel Moroni's visit three years later. Uh, but did he understand all of this theology as a 14-year-old kid? Was it the, the corporeality of deity? Eh, those are big words for a 14-year-old. I know God lives and reveals I know Christ forgives and heals. <laughs> Mother, all is well. I am well enough off. I know your church is, isn't true. Uh, sorry, Mom. Uh, I don't know any more detail than that. I'm sure it'll come later. Uh, but <laughs> all is well because I'm clean. And there's hope for me and hope for everyone. It's this revelation Yes, Joseph would have known some of these things before somehow, but he's, there was no handshake in the sacred grove uh, to see if this is a corporeal, be resurrected being. But here it's revealed, yes, the Father and the Son have a body of flesh and bones, as tangible as man's. Kind of the other bookend of what we saw at the beginning of, of this revelation. Steve Harper is a great historian, uh, and he's probably the, the, the world expert on the first vision right now. He's written a ton about it, really beautiful insight. And in one of the, the perhaps the lesser known uh, things that he said about it, I just stumbled across, across this myself, and was just, I loved what he said about the first vision. In comparison, you know, what does Joseph know as a 14 year, a 14 year old in 1820 versus what does he know now in 1843 as a 37 year old? Harper said this, what difference does it make if God and Christ are separate embodied beings, if they no longer reveal themselves, if they don't hear and answer the prayers of anxious teenagers who act in faith, if they don't forgive sins or fill us with love and joy? Presbyterians of Joseph's day, and that was mom's religion, believed that God was without body, parts, or passions. Latter-day Saints respond by emphasizing how the vision proves that God and Christ have bodies, but... What does it matter if they have bodies unless they also have passions, including redeeming love for us? I love that perspective. Did Joseph fully understand that they had bodies in 1820? Maybe, maybe not. Here, it's, it's crystal clear. Okay? You can't get any clearer than that. But what do we know Joseph truly knew as a 14-year-old? The other parts of what Stephen Harbour described, the passions side of God, that he passionately wants to reveal his will to us, that, that he desires us to know of his love and his willingness to forgive. Maybe that's more of what 
Joseph was saying to mom, not just that I'm not going to join your church, but that your view of deity is so limited that you don't know how much God loves us. In one of the accounts of the first vision, Joseph just describes how much he, he felt the love of God long past that, that morning in the grove. How could he not? Oh, beautiful doctrine here in verse 22, okay? But perhaps even more important is not just a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, but a heart of flesh and love that can make tangible to us the love of God. Now it ends there at the, the end of 22 and then through verse 23. Were it not so, the Holy Ghost could not dwell in us. He can't have a body of flesh and bones because there needs to be a way for him to infuse himself in us. And then 23, a man may receive the Holy Ghost. It may descend upon him and not tarry with him. Important reminder, especially if we're trying to live by obedience so that we can gain in intelligence. I need the Holy Ghost constantly with him. Remember 121, like the Spirit can be your constant companion. That's what we're hoping for, to live in that kind of a way. Because for him simply to descend, but not tarry, to receive the gift and then put it back in the box, that's not what, what we're after. I mean, if the Holy Ghost is trying to prepare us for that personal visit of the Father and the Son, as we saw back at the beginning of section 130, then His cannot be a momentary visit. His needs to be a constant companionship. There's actually a really interesting verse in the first chapter of John in the New Testament, where John the Baptist is told one of the ways he'll recognize Jesus. Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. Of course, he is the one that's going to be able to baptize with the Holy Ghost because the Holy Ghost is his constant companion. The Spirit, again, in the form of a dove, he did not take the shape of a dove. He didn't you know, morph himself into it, but he descended. And so did a dove to kind of show to people there's something visible to, to reflect the invisible. The Spirit is descending upon, upon Jesus. Now, the, the dove didn't stick around forever, but the Spirit sure did. It tarried upon him. And if you want to tell the difference between Christ and any of the rest of us, it's the uninterrupted companionship of the Holy Ghost. That's what we're aiming for. That's what we're striving to live up to and into. More than just descending, tarrying. Now, as we shift from 130 to 131, take one last look back at 130. And although these seem to be disconnected, just nuggets of truth, items of instruction, what do they all seem to have in common? The coming into the presence of the Father and the Son, a celestialized sociality, seeing more clearly the past and present and future and where we fit in and all of that, receiving a new name on this Urim and Thummim, Receiving truths veiled in mystery that keep us pondering, growing up in God in knowledge and in intelligence. Receiving promises based on our willingness to obey. Coming to know the true nature of God. Feeling filled with the power of the Holy Ghost. Sound like anything to you? Sounds like the temple to me. So much of these later revelations have that, that temple focus. And as the saints are building the temple of Nauvoo, 
Oh, the Lord is preparing them for all that he's wanting to pour out upon them. And the highest ordinance, as important as endowment is, in many ways that endowment of power from on high is meant to prepare us for one, one more ordinance, and that's the sealing ordinance. When we can finally step into the highest order of the, of the new and everlasting covenant and the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. With that, section 130 prepares us for section 131. Here, this brief revelation, Joseph learned something he didn't quite understand when he received section 76, those visions years before. There he saw that there were three degrees in heaven, three degrees of glory, telestial, terrestrial, celestial. Here he, he learns that they are further subdivided, at least the celestial is. We don't know enough about terrestrial or telestial. Well, actually, maybe we do know enough. We don't need to know much more. That's not where the Lord intends us to be. Just like we don't know much about the, the second and third degrees of the celestial kingdom. That's not where the Lord intends for us to spend eternity. If I'm a teacher, I want to explain to my students how to get an A. I'm not going to spend so much time on how to get an A- minus or a B plus or anything else. I, you can do this. I want you to attain the fullness. So 131 verse 1, in the celestial glory, there are three heavens or degrees. There's the subdivision. Verse 2, and in order to obtain the highest, a man must enter into this order of the priesthood, meaning the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. If he does not, he cannot obtain it. Now, verse 4, he may enter into the other, those lesser kingdoms within the celestial kingdom, but that is the end of his kingdom. He cannot have an increase. So what we're after here in those first four verses is the increase, the continuation and we'll see that in 132 with the continuation of the seed, the, uh, the per eternal progression, including the eternal growth of one's celestial family. Amazing things here. Now, we don't know, like I said, what's the second or the third reserved for. It's all celestial. It's all the presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. It's just a matter of, you know, where you're living is there. But how are we living and, and how far beyond? What's, what's the advantage in the world to come? Is my trajectory continuing uh, heavenward? That all has to do with this order of the priesthood, a patriarchal order that requires a partner. We talk about the Abrahamic covenant, and we will see Abraham as a star of the show in section 132. When you see the Abrahamic covenant, I usually teach it based on some alliteration to help our, our minds wrap around it with three Ps. The three Ps of the Abrahamic uh, covenant, the promises God gives us, there's a P also, is posterity. And that's the most important one, because without posterity, the other two don't really, they don't get perpetuated. Okay, it's just like one and done. That generation's over. So posterity, as the sands of the sea and the stars of heaven. Number two, the promise of promised land or property, some have called it, or prosperity, some have called it. Promised land. I'll give you the land of Israel. North, south, east, west, it's all yours. And then the third is the promise of priesthood, which and all that it entails. So the blessings of the gospel, exaltation, eternal life. Those three Ps, God promised to Abraham. He chose Abraham because Abraham chose him. But remember, we've talked about this. To be a chosen people means you've chosen God and you choose everyone else to end up being chosen as well. Okay? Inclusivity, or excuse me, exclusivity in pursuit of radical inclusivity. Now, speaking of inclusivity, God wants to include us in the Abrahamic covenant. And he renews that covenant upon us 
personally, the day we are sealed in the temple, when we enter into that order of the priesthood, a patriarchal order, and when the patriarchal order is there, then the matriarchal order by definition has to be there too. This, this is key when it comes to marriage and why marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God because it finally allows the patriarchal and the matriarchal to come together in a new and everlasting covenant. New to you, everlasting to me, God would say. It's always been this way. It was that way in pre-mortality with a heavenly father and a heavenly mother. There's patriarchal, matriarchal. It was that way in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. It was that way through each dispensation when you see an Abraham and Sarah, an Isaac and Rebekah, a Jacob and Rachel. In fact, if I can explain this, it wasn't just Abraham. We always talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But as we'll see with plural marriage, in Abraham's case, we see it clearly. In Jacob's case, we see it clearly. There were other options for wives and children that would still claim Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because for the covenant to flow through this first family of faith, it wasn't Hagar's son, Ishmael. It was Sarah's son, Isaac. You see, Ishmael could have still said, I'm of Abraham. The difference between Ishmael and Isaac is that Isaac could say, I'm of Abraham, but I'm also of Sarah. For Joseph, the birthright son of Jacob, of Israel, it wasn't enough for him to say, I am of Israel, because all of the other brothers could also, whether they were from Leah or from Bilhah or from Zilpah. No, that birthright son, Joseph, had to say, not only I am of, of, of Israel, of Jacob, I am of Rachel. Uh, especially to you sisters that unfortunately sometimes feel like second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Please understand that when we speak of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's probably more accurate to speak of the God of Sarah and Rebekah and Rachel. It was the mothers that mattered even more than the fathers as far as the covenant line was concerned because other sons of other mothers had the same father. But that was the mother that counted Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel. I, I say that to emphasize for us that as we step into the Abrahamic and Sarah, can we even say that, covenant, it happens in marriage and only through celestial, eternal marriage, which is the topic of section 132. You see, we, we renew, we make covenants with, with Christ at baptism, but we don't step into the Abrahamic covenant personally until we're sealed in the temple. I, I say personally because we inherit that covenant just by entering the, the kingdom of God. Paul talks about this to the Galatians, I believe, that as soon as you're adopted into the family, at baptism, at accepting Jesus Christ, then you are seed of Abraham. But it's one thing to receive a promise by inheritance. I happen to be in the same family tree. It's another thing to, to receive it by, by immediate covenant, not just inheritance from above, but immediacy to me. And you see that in the Old Testament. God covenants personally with Abraham. 
But then later he covenants personally with Isaac. He doesn't just say, oh, you're Abraham's kid? Okay, we'll count it. No, he says, I'm now covenanting with thee, you directly, Isaac. Independent of your father, it's now renewed specifically to you. And then he does the same thing with, with Jacob. It's not just because you're in the right family tree, although that's part of it. You were born into this covenant, great, but now I've made it specifically with you. Those of us that are members of the church, whether born into the covenant or adopted in at baptism, yeah, we inherit the Abrahamic covenant and the promises made, but the day we are sealed in the temple, it is renewed specifically to you. In the sealing, when we are promised those specific blessings, and, and think about the three Ps again. Only, in the, only, only through celestial sealing, eternal marriage, that new and everlasting covenant of marriage, do we get the first P, posterity. Remember, it was the sands of the sea and the stars of heaven, and Abraham was in a desert at night when God made him that promise. I grew up in L.A. If God said, you'll have seed like the stars of heaven, I'd look around through the smog and go, wow, five or six kids? Awesome. But in the desert at night, sand of the sea, stars of heaven, innumerable. That for us, the only way that's possible is eternal increase. And that's only possible through eternal covenant, eternal marriage, male, female, procreative power. That's the first P. Second P is promised land. And ours isn't Israel. We don't look north, south, east, and west, but we do look heavenward and see the highest degree of the celestial kingdom, the only place where eternal increase is possible. That first P is made possible by the second. I'm in God's presence, a life like his, and so there and only there, that's my promised land. I finally have access to it because I found my partner. It takes two keys to get into that door. And then the third P, priesthood, and all that it entails, well, this new and everlasting covenant of marriage is part of that order of the priesthood the patriarchal priesthood, which was never mine when it was, when it was mine alone. Yes, I had Aaronic and I had Melchizedek by myself, but that highest, it's all under the umbrella of the, of the Melchizedek priesthood and the real name that that name is meant to, uh, to replace. But it's only when I found my companion. And when we were sealed in the San Diego temple on February 12th, 1999, glorious day, that I finally stepped into a fullness of priesthood because I was missing my other half. My rib was gone <laughs> and I wasn't complete until I found my Eve and we twain became one flesh, one priesthood holder, one inheritor of the highest degree of the celestial kingdom, one couple, an Abraham and Sarah, an Isaac and Rebecca, a Jacob and Rachel, a Jared and Emily, in our case. I hope that helps illustrate the need for eternal marriage in the temple, because that will be the topic of section 132. I will say this too, Mar a celestial marriage is not a prerequisite for, for that kingdom. It's the essence of what that kingdom entails. I want you to imagine the difference between having some kind of a certificate that says you have a partner. Like, I have my marriage certificate. Isn't that good enough? It's like, no, you actually needed to bring your partner because we're going to do something that you need. You don't have enough hands to do it all yourself. 
Uh, picture, I, I sometimes joked with my students, I'm like, have you ever gone swing dancing? They're like, yeah, and some do, they're great at it. And, and it's like, have you ever done swing dancing by yourself? I mean, sometimes you go to a dance and it's like one big mosh pit and everyone's just kind of jumping around and it's, it's separate and it's single. We'll see those words in 132. But it, it's impossible to do real swing dancing by yourself. And in a way, if heaven is not a mosh pit, it's a swing dance, it's a waltz, you have to have a partner, the highest degree that is. To do what we do there, to, to have eternal increase and eternal progression, it's not that you're checking a box and saying, see, I have a wedding certificate, so I qualify to come. It's, no, I, I have my partner with me. And so it's not just that we're qualified to come, it's that we're ready to participate. I hope that that makes sense, that this is not just some new, another box to check or, or a certificate to bring, that I am bringing a partner because what we are going to be doing in the highest degree of the Celestial Kingdom requires that kind of permanent partnership, that kind of celestial union. That's what exaltation is all about. Now, are we going to make it? How do we know if we're going to get there? Especially when, like we saw earlier, that it takes two parts, not just the celestial wedding, which takes like a half an hour, but the celestial marriage, which takes all the life that follows thereafter. How do I know if I'm doing it right? Verse 5, the more sure word of prophecy means a man's knowing that he is sealed up unto eternal life by revelation and the spirit of prophecy through the power of the holy priesthood. It is impossible for a man to be saved in ignorance. Now, I wanted to read verse 6 right on the heels of verse 5 because that's how it was revealed. I think too often we pull out verse 6, uh, kind of cherry pick it from Scripture, and use it as a verse to explain the importance of education. And, and I've seen lots of people do that, and it's great. It is a great verse that can be used to emphasize education. I would prefer that we use the one back in 130 that we just talked about in terms of diligence and obedience leading to knowledge and intelligence, but this idea of you can't be saved in ignorance is a good one. And there's other scriptures that actually, I think, teach that principle more, more clearly and powerfully. The glory of God is intelligence, for example, right? Uh, because in context, this is not a verse about education. This is a verse about having your calling and election made sure. And five, when it speaks of the more sure word of prophecy, that's having your calling and election made sure. That means a man's knowing that you made it. You've been sealed up unto eternal life. And the sealing ordinance is part of that sealing up. Because now I have access to that highest degree because I found my partner. We can go swing dance now. We can have eternal increase now. And so when he speaks of ignorance in verse 6, you can't be saved in ignorance. It's not a matter of you can't be saved if you didn't have a high enough education. Yes, get all the education you can. But in context, it's not that you're be, you won't be saved without you knowing about it, is what he's saying. You won't be saved in ignorance of the fact that you're going to be saved. That's what having your calling and election made sure is. You know. You've had that confirmed. I'm going to make it because Christ has promised me that I would. Now, 
What I love about five and six is I see it happen all the time when I, when I used to give temporary, I've been released from the bishopric onto another calling. And when I gave temple recommend interviews, it was always interesting at the end, the very last question, when, I mean, it's not, there's not just two signatures on the temple recommend, Aaronic priesthood, bishopric, Melchizedek priesthood, state presidency, it's your signature. And of the three, yours might matter the most because, I mean, if he's going to open the books that are written and the book is the works of our, that we've performed in this life, then you're the one that signs off on your own salvation. And so that final question, do you consider yourself worthy to enter the Lord's house and participate in temple ordinances? Are, are you, do you have the confidence to step into the presence of God? Can you come boldly to the throne of grace? Are you signing your name on the dotted line? And that's the one that a lot of people, especially the more sensitive souls, have a hard time with. Ah, I don't know. I'm not perfect. Well, don't forget Brad Wilcox's latest general conference talk, which was so powerful, that worthiness is not flawlessness. That was, that's a very helpful reminder. But what I love about section 131, verse 5, now let me, I don't know if water down your calling and election made sure is, is the right phrase, but... If being worthy to enter God's temple, in some ways, should equate with worthiness to enter God's kingdom, it's his house is his kingdom on, on earth, kind of personified in architecture, right? Well, notice again the list. What does it take to have your calling and election made sure? Three things. You're sealed up unto eternal life, number one, by revelation. Number two, by the spirit of prophecy. And number three, through the power of the holy priesthood. And for those that, would have, that I would do temple recommend interviews with, if they were kind of, oh, I don't know if I can answer that last question, ah, I'm, I'm not good enough, I would always open up to this verse and try to reassure them. I'm not here to make your calling and election made sure. I'm just here to sign your temple recommend. And I'm here to reassure you that you can sign your recommend too, based on all the other answers that you've given me. There's nothing glaring that has, has ruined your relationship with Christ. There's not some major sin that you have committed or that's unresolved or that you are committing now that needs, that needs repentance. So think about these three on more of a, a personal level. 131, I think, ties into 130 as far as this. There can be a personal manifestation of the Father and the Son and a, and a literal calling and election made sure. But if we're signing temple recommends, if we need to have confidence in the presence of God, that was section 121, right? Charity, virtue, conf your confidence will wax strong in the presence of God. Of course you can sign your temple recommend. I'm right here with him. He'll sign it for me. But notice these three. By revelation, the spirit of revelation is having the Holy Ghost with us. Do you feel the Holy Ghost in your life? Is the spirit as much of a constant companion as we can allow? That's one first. That's a good sign. Number two, the spirit of prophecy. Now that one we think, oh, I have to be able to predict the future? Mm. The book of Revelation defines the spirit of prophecy as the testimony of Jesus. And what were the first questions that you were asked in the temple recommend? Do you have faith in and a testimony of God the Eternal Father, His Son Jesus Christ, the Holy Ghost? Do you have faith in and a testimony of the atonement of Jesus Christ and of His role as your Savior and Redeemer, not just Savior and Redeemer. That was the old version. Your Savior and Redeemer. That's the new version. So personal. In other words, if you have the Holy Ghost with you, 
Feel the Spirit in your life. And if you have a testimony of Jesus, because it's only through him that you can repent of the mistakes that you make on all the other questions. But if you have a testimony of him and what he's done for you and what he's continuing to do for you and in you and with you, and if you've received saving ordinances, that's that third part, through the power of the Holy Ghost, you made covenant when you were baptized. You renew that covenant every time you're, you partake of the sacrament. You're trying to go into the house of God to offer these priesthood ordinances and covenants to all those who've gone before. Can I sign my name on my temple recommend? Through the power of priesthood ordinances, through the gift of the Holy Ghost, and through my testimony of the atonement of Jesus Christ. You better believe I can. In, in, a, in a small way. Every two years as I sign my temple recommend, and as my Aaronic priesthood and Melchizedek priesthood representatives do the same, I'm having my calling and election made a little more sure. And it's through the same process. It's impossible for me to go into the temple without knowing that. I am not ignorant of my worthiness through Jesus Christ, through the Spirit, through the ordinances of the priesthood. I, I love that passage, especially for those that are, are wrestling with their their lack of flawlessness and, and need to be reassured of their worthiness. Last two verses then, last little item of instruction in 131. Verse 7, there is no such thing as immaterial matter. I mean, the, the phrase itself is an oxymoron since immaterial means no matter. So there can't be immaterial matter. All spirit is matter, but it is more fine or pure and can only be discerned by purer eyes. We cannot see it. But when our bodies are purified, we shall see that it is all matter. Now, if I was an astrophysicist, I could probably explain those verses even better. Uh, I've, I'm fascinated by just dark matter in the universe and, and things that, okay, there, there seems to be a, a mass uh, in the universe that goes far beyond what we could possibly imagine from just the planets and the stars and asteroids and everything else, the, the physical matter that's out there. So there must be something else that's there that fills the immensity of space. We would say, yeah, yeah, section 88 calls it the light of Christ. Uh, and if that's spirit, and then it has to be matter also. I mean, there's, as far as uh, an astrophysics kind of perspective, verse 7 and 8 are really deep. Uh, from a, an eight, a 19th century, 1843 perspective, the saints are probably like, oh, I'm kind of over my head. But is this the law of conservation of mass uh, on a universal scale, uh, on a spiritual scale included? Uh, that there's, there's something to everything. Something tangible, even if it's too fine and it, and it slips through your fingers. To me, there's something about 7 and 8 that suggests the fineness and the purity of spirit that can only be discerned when your bodies are purified as well. It's almost like there's, you have to be on a certain level to see things on a certain level. Uh, we mere mortals are, need the help of, of telescopes and microscopes to see things that are just too big for us or too small for us. And we will need purer eyes to see things that are just too pure for us to see. I mean, if we have this visible spectrum, right? 
uh, and red on one end and violet on the other. But there is infrared before the first, and there's ultraviolet beyond the final. Oh, imagine being able to have purified eyes to see all that is there. Maybe this goes back to where we started in 130 about seeing Christ because we see him as he is and he sees us as we are and there's a oneness there as we've come to know one another with a divine sociality that is now glorified. I imagine we've got a lot of seeing to do uh, as, we, as we progress and become more pure. Now with all of that behind us, we now have section 132. Are you ready? <laughs>